And at the time, I remember thinking as we were leading up to that, how's he going to fare? And then I remembered, <laughs> this is Wayne Rooney. He goes running out in front of all those people mm. at Old Trafford and he then gives interviews mm. to the press after a match. I think he'll be all right. Meet Geraldine Ryan. Geraldine is a commercial litigator at the top of her game. She's currently a partner at the international law firm CMS based in Spinning Fields. Geraldine's known for her successes in the Court of Appeal, like the one she just mentioned, when she acted on Wayne Rooney's dispute with his management company. When Geraldine was growing up in Oldham, pupils from her school weren't expected to go into the law. But she got there through determination and a lot of hard work. She's now passionate about widening access to a career in law for people of all backgrounds. She gives back to Manchester too with a fundraising for St Anne's Hospice and for her work on grassroots football as board member of the Manchester FA. So I wanted to know, what's it been like working in an industry that when she first started was still having a debate of whether female solicitors should wear trousers? How do you build a solid relationship with clients at a time when they're most likely feeling vulnerable? And how has a Manchester upbringing encouraged her love of getting into a debate? Geraldine, welcome to We Built This City. Thank you. Well, I'm over the moon to have you here today because it's taken a lot of coaxing because Geraldine is somebody who's an extremely modest person and does not like to hog the limelight in any way. Um, and I've known her for a very long time through business, first as a client and then as a friend. And since I've met her, I've been inspired by her calm and committed approach to leading teams of people and her vision and integrity. So I'm really looking forward today, Geraldine, for you to share your story and your views about a very illustrious career in Manchester. Wow, thank you, Lisa. <laughs> Hardly recognise myself. <laughs> so you were born and bred Manc. You were born and bred in Oldham, went to Sheffield University to study and now live in Altrincham. So first of all, why have you got a Scouse accent? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good question, isn't it? Yeah. Where did that Scouse accent come from? Well, um, I um, live with a Scouser, although he's a posh Scouser, mm. Kit Sorrel, the posh Scouser. <laughs> and uh, he says words like chicken. And so I've got that. And then I worked for a firm that had a base in Liverpool. Mm. And what I learned about Scousers is they talk really quickly. And as a girl from Oldham, and I talked really slowly, <laughs> if I talked with my Oldham accent, nobody ever listened to the end of the sentence. <laughs> and that's the truth of it. I had to talk quickly just to get my point across. I didn't know that. Isn't that sad? That's amazing, <laughs> but you've definitely got that scout twang, haven't you? It does suit you, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> so you, your parents, you were obviously born and you were raised in Oldham. What was life like growing up as a young girl there in the 1970s? Yeah. Oh, thanks, Lisa. Sorry. I, but, listen, I'm, no, <laughs> I was in the 70s. No, we, seven, yeah. I was even earlier than oh, that. That's oh, why I'm saying oh. thanks, Lisa. Well done, I'll take it. So born in Boundary Park Hospital just um, next to Oldham Athletic Football Club and we lived across the road. So my dad, Billy, William, William, Billy Mitchell, came over from Ireland and met my mum, Kathleen. Her parents were Irish, um, well, Granddad was, Grandma wasn't. And Dad worked away a lot. So he was in tunnelling and they didn't dig too many tunnels around Oldham. So <laughs> I think we well, had once had a job down the road from where we were, but most of the time he was away. So it was my mum, her mum, Edie, and me, and then the other siblings who came along. And um, 
yeah, it was, you know, it was a different time mm. and um, we were, we, it was good. It was a good family, really. I was very lucky. I've been very lucky with my family. So, yeah. And you still got a good relationship, haven't you, with your oh, yeah. siblings? And <laughs> I mean, someone well, say, can you do something? You go, no, it's so-and-so's birthday. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah our Nora, our Cathy and our Liam. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, my sister, one of my sisters lives locally. She lives in Presswich. Brother lives in Sadworth. And then sister Cathy lives in Dublin. But we are close. Mm. And uh, sort of constantly exchanging stuff on uh, all the available social media, yeah. and uh, it's good. Yeah, I'm glad I'm you know got that close, warm, supportive family. Yeah. Doesn't mean we don't have the old rock because no. you do, don't you? Mm. But you know we do get on incredibly well. So when you were growing up in Oldham, did you ever come into the city centre as a teenager? It's yeah, it's a funny thing that isn't it? Because um, you know, <laughs> to think you're in all the time now, but no, um, not very often. So um, when I was eleven, um, I needed a brace on my teeth, and my granny Edie brought me down on two buzzes, bu- buzzes, <laughs> buzzes, because I really am from Oldham, buzzes. And uh, yeah, we had, it was two, it was two buzzes. You had to change, you had to change, and then you got off at Stevenson Square and walked all the way down to John Street to get my brace wow. fitted. And so that was when I was about eleven, twelve. And Manchester was the big city. And then when I was probably about 16, 17, in fact, yeah, 17 when I was doing my A-levels, my school didn't, it's a comprehensive that's long since been knocked down. And so we were sent down to Manchester Library. um, Mm. And I, that you know, sitting in Manchester Library, going in there, doing, it was history. I was sent in there by a teacher called Alan Critchley. So I got sent down there and he'd give me a list of books and I'd go in and um, and I thought I really quite liked being in the library. Mm. And I think that made me, that independent study that I was expected to do with his guidance at Manchester Library. Um, but yeah, so those, so those were the the trips from Oldham down to Manchester. Was It was a big deal. Yeah. I and mean, it's still a big deal. You know, like the likes of my Auntie Eileen won't come to Manchester to this day because without my mum because really? she thinks it's, well, it's a long way from Oldham to yeah. Manchester. <laughs> How old did we used to take on the bus, the bus with, with Edie? Well, you'd got the one from where we lived on Rochdale Road up to into Oldham. And then you'd change and get the 184 down. So it'd be a good hour, mm. more than an hour, easily. Mm. Day I, trip. Yeah, it was a day trip. Mm. Just to come and get my braces fitted. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> and then back. And the walk down. It's a long walk from Stevens <laughs> yeah, Square to John Street, isn't it? Little legs at 11, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dragged down there. I think she had little legs as well, so it probably took us a long time to get there. <laughs> get my braces fitted. Yeah. <laughs> And you wanted to be a lawyer from a very early age, didn't you? So how did that come about? It's really, really embarrassing, this, isn't it? Because I didn't really know what being a lawyer was, to be honest, in many ways. I think I'd seen a couple of television programmes, and again, showing my age here, Crown Court used to be on. <laughs> oh my God, That's so yeah. old, and I bet if I saw it now, I'd think, what were you was thinking? That, that was black and white, I think, uh, yeah, it? Probably. <laughs> and then there was this really glossy one, which was called Paper Chase, and it was about these students in, it was on BBC Two, and it was about these students in California, and they'd find a really interesting point of law and do something with it so there was that bit and then there was um, a more sort of materialistic my dad had a friend who had a a law practice in Manchester Barry Cuttle it was a criminal practice and he drove a jag and I think that was part of it (laughs) really shallow 
<laughs> you drove a jag. But there you are. So between the television and Barry Cuttle, that was the sort of driving force of me being a lawyer. And I liked, I always liked arguing with people or debating, I think, rather than arguing, I'd say. So, and what age was that when you kind of realised that you wanted to be the lawyer? About 13, mm. 14. Yeah, and so that you knew, and did you never swerve from that decision? No, I mean, I, again, you sort of wonder what I knew. What Did I really even know what I thought mm. what I was going to be doing? And to some extent, I had that sort of, um, I'm going to set the world to rights. Again, touching on the Irish theme, there's things like the um, Birmingham Six, Guildford Four, and so it was the miscarriages of justice and things like that. And I thought, oh, yeah, I could I could go and do that. Now, there aren't, thankfully, that many miscarriages of justice. So um, that isn't how I've ended up spending my career. But it was it was all lo- lots and lots of different strands, really, that made me think it was interesting. And then I did go and get some work experience with Barry's firm. And that was really eye-opening. I mean, going in, I mean, by this stage, I'm probably about 16, 17 doing Mm. A-levels. And I went into strange ways with him. I attended at the magistrate's court. And you really sort of saw what the life of a criminal solicitor, although I didn't end up practising in that area, it didn't put me off. It still Mm. made me want to do it. After having done a degree, having done law society exams, and then got into the job, found myself thinking, oh, I don't know whether this is actually for me. And I remember saying to my mum, I don't think I can do this. I don't think... It, and, and so I was in my training contract and on the verge of packing it in. But then I had to speak to my parents and tell them that I was thinking about packing it in. And my mum said, well, if you can think of something else to do with all the education that you've now had, mm-hmm. uh, fine, but do you not think you could just qualify first? <laughs> And I couldn't think of anything else. And I did qualify. And then I got into um, another firm doing different work, more litigation, a commercial litigation sort of work that I do to this day and loved it. Mm. And so that was that. And never, ever thought about packing it in as a lawyer since. So just going back then to your parents' response when you thought you might give it all up. Were they supported through your younger years and you wanted to to be a lawyer? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was one of those, um, it was very much a work hard. There was no sort of you will be a lawyer and you will be, because I've had friends who've had that where, or I see it sometimes now where, you know, I want a daughter who does this and a son who does that. There was none of that. It was very much um, work hard at school, do your best um, and then do what makes you happy. Mm. And so as a result... I do what I do. Uh, But it was that sort of, you knew that there was a support and, you know, we were lucky and, you know, uh, I think in in most things in life you need luck and you need luck and support of a good family Mm. and um, that was, that's massive really. Very much so. It's it's crucial, isn't it? It, and it can be the difference to you making a success or not, that support of your parents from an early age. I agree with you. I mean, just going back again to what life was like in your house and you said you liked arguing debating was that something that was encouraged in the house or were you the argumentative one or what was it like was it freedom of speech in the um, house and stuff? yeah it was it was a funny I mean the sort of my teenage years so I mentioned before dad worked away a lot so he used to come home from by this stage he'd got his own uh, small tunneling business and so he was gosh I remember him having jobs on the south coast so he'd be down in Bournemouth and Southampton he'd also have a job up in Glasgow and he'd be traveling up and down and my mum was at home with us 
And then her brother's wife died. Um, she was only 42 and they had four kids. And um, those four kids then started spending a lot of time with us. So we had, there was eight of us in the house and my uncle at weekends when my dad had come home, we'd all be there. And so you just naturally ended up, and I was one of those teenagers, my poor father, I'd have to sort of debate with him about issues around um, the Catholic Church and contraception (laughs) and whether confession was something that you should or shouldn't be doing and, you know, all those things. Poor man could hardly sit at his own dinner table without having all this. It was just done and, um, you know, we just got on with it. That's so funny. It takes me back a bit to when I came home from university and I'd become a strident feminist. And in the end, when I came back from university, because we always debated around the, the table on a Saturday night and we kind of could debate until you disagreed with what my dad thought. And then he was, we had to break his soul up. Everyone was in, go back to the bedrooms. But in the end, he, when I came back from university, he just chucked me out. After oh. about six months, we couldn't deal with no, my opinions it. anymore. It was just like, yeah. you know, it was either me or him. So I, no. I left. No. Um, talking about the career in law then. I'd forgotten that it's only just over 100 years since yeah. the Sex Disqualification Act came into force, which meant women could even practice as lawyers. Mm. That's such a short period of time, isn't it? I know, especially because I've been qualified, 30 of them, which is... <laughs> and, and again, I think partly because of I was ignorant of that mm. at the time, I had no idea that there might be some... Um, bar or even, you know, that there would be people who were still at the top of the tree who had perhaps been around when that bar was in. Mm. And I just didn't know. I mean, you know, I look back now and I think, how could I not have known? Mm. But I didn't. And thankfully I didn't because had I known, I might have been more wary of thinking I could do it. It's thanks to those women for doing what they did and having the strength of character to go and insist on being able to become solicitors and barristers and, you know, subsequently, you know, thankfully we've got judges, female judges, etc. But it, it took somebody to take that first step and to push those things through. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had the career I've had. But it's interesting also that you, as a young woman going into law, that you didn't feel held back anyway. So that was obviously the support you've been given by your family. Yeah. You've didn't feel that being a woman was going to hold you back from pursuing what was typically a a male career a short time before that? Yeah, I just genuinely didn't know. And I think when I was at school and perhaps those people, the teachers were saying, oh, you know, why don't you go and become a teacher? Perhaps with hindsight, they were thinking that it was such an unusual thing to Mm -hmm. do. But nobody ever put it to me like that. And so... I got the grades to do to go to Sheffield University. I applied and got the grades and then I went to Sheffield University. There were lots of women on the course mm-hmm. as well doing the law degree and then there were lots of women doing the solicitor's finals. So it never really occurred to me that, that it wasn't something that was expected mm-hmm. or we were able to do. So, yeah, you just, you know, and then... Then you go to the bit where you are moving into the profession and working. It became more apparent once you were actually working um, either as a trainee or as a qualified solicitor that there were relatively few senior women, relatively few female barristers, next to no female judges. And so you did notice it more then, but they were all older than you. Um, And during my career, the number of women qualifying now outweighs the number of men. So things have changed quickly, um, you know, during the course of the career. Mm. Yeah, 
and I think if you go into something without having that mindset that it's going to be tough, I mean, well, I suppose thinking back to my career, um, I assumed it would be tough. I just thought that was your, it was going to be tough as a starting out in work and you had to graft and you'd have to do the hard yards. Mm-hmm. So I didn't expect anything else. But people say to me, did you really feel that there was a, any misogyny? And th- look, there was a couple of, of times where, yes, that was apparent, but generally... I just cracked on and, and got on with every day and it didn't really affect me, I don't think. No, I think, I, you know, we'll have all had, there'll be conversations, there'll be, you know, anecdotes we can mm. tell, etc. Yeah. Um, but I'd really rather not focus on those mm. because they were just, you know, blips along the way. And, you know, when they happened, um, so it did happen at some point during a training contract or on qualification. And rather than argue about it, I just moved on. Mm. Uh, but then I haven't moved on many times. Mm. So I was with my first firm for qualification for seven years and my last firm for 23 years. So I've obviously been able to yes. deal with it. And wherever I've encountered it, call it out as best you can and then keep going. Absolutely. I mean, so you're saying that we've probably got very good representation of women in the legal sector now. Are we as good in terms of like, you know, wider diversity? No. No, we're not. And that is something to work on. And, and But women still, I said that a lot of, you know, it's, there's more women than men qualifying. That's right. But they don't necessarily all stay the full course because it's still very tough and things are improving. And I do think what we've just gone through with the pandemic and being able to work from home and more flexible working will make the life of a, a woman in the law more accessible to more people. In terms of ethnic diversity, that's something that does need work. As, and it's improving again, but everything takes time. But it has to become almost something that you give a focus to. And by giving a focus to diversity and inclusion, and in that, you know, including lots and lots of issues, um, so disability as well, and, and you know, a very wide range, and social mobility, mm-hmm. making sure we pick that up at the same time, doing all of those things. If you give people targets and you give them a focus, it's more likely to improve. Mm-hmm. But if you don't focus on it, it probably won't. Mm-hmm. And so I think certainly CMS, we've got a real... Um, you know, there are various groups and committees and there are real drivers and people are really keen to push these things forward. And And it's not just about talking about it. It is about going out there and actually doing it and trying to drive those inclusivity areas up. Mm. And that's great to hear because it's been said, hasn't it, that certainly pre-pandemic when Spinning Fields was full, you didn't see many people that weren't middle class white people. Yeah. In yeah, suits, and and obviously there are thousands of people who rep, you know represented it, who work for legal firms and other yeah. professional services firms. So, you know that is still telling, isn't it? Yeah. And it's and it's it is notable. Yeah, and it, it, I do think things are improving and will take more work, but will get better. Mm. When you started your career out, did you ever think? At that point, I'm going to head up a major, major name law firm in in Manchester City Centre. Did you ever? No, I I don't think you do. I think Mm. I think what you do is, as you say, you come, you want to just go in, work Mm. hard, and just try and 
now <laughs> and you know don't really you know don't really see it like that it's um you're just working aren't you and getting on and doing the job and working with the clients working with your teams and and just you know and then things just seem to happen around you and and then you say it's sitting across the table from you saying I'm 30 years qualified and going <laughs> where the heck did that go do you know <laughs> and I just genuinely don't know you know but I've been lucky I think that's another thing that I don't think enough people necessarily accept and ad- what, what accept, admit to admit to because I do think you've got to work hard mm. but you've got to have luck as well mm. and then there'll be people saying oh, make your own luck yeah well you do but you've still got to have a bit of luck along the way to get the to be in the right place when a particular job lands or an opportunity mm. lands and knowing to take it so when somebody says do you want to be the head of litigation you don't say oh no I think you know somebody else should do it you just grab it with both mm. hands and and take it and get on with it mm. it's that confidence isn't it and that belief in yourself because I think we've all gone through that imposter syndrome where you literally look around at a room full of people and think they're all better than me they know more people than me so it's taking that leap of faith to just give it a go isn't it that's it is. the cookie cutter for me yeah and I think I think the other thing is it's that bit where where I've read that women will only apply for a role if they tick all of the boxes mm. where a man will perhaps if he gets six of the boxes he'll apply I don't know whether that's true or <laughs> whether that's story, just though. yeah but it's what they say but you know um for me when somebody's offered me something I've generally said yes rather yeah. than no and I think that's probably the best way to be and if you can't do it they'll soon tell you won't they great piece of advice just say yes no <laughs> matter how yes. frightened you are say yes say and, yes yeah. and you'll figure it out absolutely so I know you're an extremely discreet person Geraldine and you've worked for some very very high profile people and you're definitely an advocate of the expression loose lip sync ships because you don't <laughs> trade gossip and you don't trade client information why has that been so important for you to live and work by well first of all i'm a solicitor <laughs> and the sra might not oh, be dead no, in press um, I, you know, professional duty of confidentiality yeah. and just as you say it's common sense you know if i'm you know if i were to say something indiscreet why would you then trust me mm. with your your secret so it's twofold even if it's not something that the sra might be interested in it's just inappropriate. Mm. It's totally inappropriate. Mm. I'm dealing with people's businesses, with issues that are of paramount importance to them. The only cases I'll ever mention are ones that have been reported in law reports mm. because they are then in the public domain and that's so. I, you know, that's, that's fair game. I can mention things like that. But other than that, it's just not right. Mm. But even non-professional stuff, you know, you're definitely somebody that doesn't gossip and, and no. doesn't know. And I've always admired that about you. Well, I don't, I wouldn't like somebody to do it about no. me. I think that's one of the things, isn't it? You know, treat people how you'd like yeah. to be treated. Yeah. And, you know, so that is how I carry on, really. And Manchester, it's a big city but it's a small community oh, yeah. isn't it so that's you on the you're long only career two, yeah <laughs> you're only two ways it steps away from connection aren't you yeah. and you sort of hear somebody you know I, you'll be amazed if you sat in a cafe or a bar and you hear and you sort of listen and think gosh they're talking about so-and-so how do they know that that's <laughs> no. not my sister best friend whoever the heck it might be you know and they're, they're just wittering away yeah how silly yeah absolutely you have to always look over your shoulder don't you if you say anything and speak quietly when you're walking down king street (laughs) um just in terms of i'm interested because obviously with the work that we've done with united city after the first lockdown we were really trying to encourage people to come back into the city to support the ecosystem Mm -hmm. 
and obviously the hospitality and, and some of the independence. But what struck me more now as we as we do see a, a city that's got a lot more people in it, it's still the big professional services firms who haven't necessarily had the migration back into the city. And what concerns me um, particularly is those young people who we've just been talking about our careers and you know the support that we had and the stuff we learned over doing the small stuff every day. Mm-hmm. What's your view on that, our young people of um, the future it, it, generations? It is, it's a big challenge. I mean, as you say, for, for people like us, we could stay at home and work in our, you know, sitting rooms or wherever we've been working quite adequately forever. Only I'd go insane because I like actually being with people. But yeah, juniors, juniors do need to learn by process of osmosis. However, I don't think we're ever going to get back to a five days of people being in the office. Mm. I think with technology, with the way people have been able to work, there is going to be hybrid working. And, and it, it is those junior people or maybe those who are more sort of mid, mid-level who want it most. And we are going to have to drive some return to the office, but it's going to, it will undoubtedly be flexible. At CMS, we're sort of three days a week. We're aiming to get people back in for three days a week. But I was approached last week by a lady who wants some work experience. And I mentioned the fact that I'd had a work experience. Mm. And she's doing a law degree at the moment. And she's talking about getting work experience. And immediately my reaction was yes. Mm. And then as soon as I thought, yeah. And then I thought, what am I going to do with her? Because it's not only what's going on in our offices. It's the fact that clients don't want to come to the office to meet people as much as they did in my day. We're having court hearings dealt with remotely, so on a screen. So we can't just take them down to court the same way that I would have you been taken. With, with Barry Cussell. Yeah, I was in. I was in prison and in the back, <laughs> yeah. in the back rooms at court. You know, you know that's not happening. So. I think it's going to be, uh, you know, an adaptation to how we train people. And I think maybe I'd look at the the thing that we just said about how great those young people are that we've met and how skilled they are. We're possibly worrying unnecessarily because they'll adapt quicker than we think they mm-hmm. will. And they're probably ahead of, of figuring this out. And uh, they don't really need me to try and figure mm-hmm. it out for them. But... It's going to be a mix and it's going to be a learning mm. curve, I think, is, is where mm. I think we are. It's an interesting point, actually, because we do have the lens of, well, in our day. Yeah, and back I think, in the day. Yeah, I mean, I remember I was saying somebody the other day that I had chill blains from 21 because I used to get the bus in a pair of cheap, like, stiletto heels and, and a skirt and tramp into Manchester in the slush every day, breaking my back and then running up King Street yeah. with a, a little LK Bennett dress later. And it, it's we are applying... I look at the people in our team think you've got jeans on and I've got palpitations, yeah. but it'll figure itself out well, to that, some degree. Well, that would have been mm. the bloke who said, why is that woman in a law, you know, in a law firm wearing a pair of trousers? Because that mm. was one of the big things when I first started. Should female solicitors be able to wear trousers? I mean, really? Oh, I mean, <laughs> but, you know, but now we're worrying about what they're wearing mm. and I'm sure it'll figure mm. itself out, mm. I'm sure. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> I hope so. Stop, stop worrying. <laughs> so just talking about court hearings, can you tell us about some of those big cases that you're on? <laughs> <laughs> um, and what you learn from them is interesting. 
Yeah, Court Herring. The very first one I went on was, um, it's Hawksmoor Restaurant now. So I'm going back a long time when that was part of the county court. And I remember going along and somebody had thrown a file at me and said, oh, you've got to go down to this hearing and it won't take you two minutes. And, you know, you just got to ask this person these three questions. And I got there and realised it was what they called motions day. And the room was full of qualified barristers. And um, I'm suddenly there trying to ask my witness these three questions in front of a room full of people. And what I learned from that was prepare <laughs> and try not to just believe the person who's just chucked the file at you that it's all <laughs> going to be straightforward because it might not be. So that was an early one. But one of the things that I, I am known for having acted on Wayne Rooney's dispute with his management company, and that was absolutely fascinating in the fact that we went to trial on that and um, going into court with Wayne and his mother and fighting through a scrum of the world's press who had no idea what the case was about, but they knew mm. that it involved at Wayne. And just trying to get Jeanette's mum through this mob of people who were then... And Wayne was going in to give evidence in this case, and people were trying to get him to stop and sign autographs. And to actually be in that melee, and then you have to walk into a courtroom, and it was in Manchester in front of Brendan Hegarty, his honour judge Brendan Hegarty, and the courtroom, biggest courtroom in that civil justice centre. And it was packed and there were people sat on the floor because there were some members of the press, not the cameras, but, you know, the, the written journalists were allowed in. They were all sat on the floor and we had to walk over people's legs. I have never been in a courtroom where there's been so much interest in something. And by the vast majority of the people in the room who had no idea what the legal principles we were there for, they just wanted to see mm. whether Wayne would be able to answer questions under pressure mm. in that environment. And he did. And and at the time, I remember thinking as we were leading up to that, how's he going to fare? And I went out for a run. I used to do quite a bit of running. And I was, you know, gosh, you know, it must be quite intimidating. And then I remembered, <laughs> this is Wayne Rooney. He goes running out in front of all those people mm. at Old Trafford. And he then gives interviews mm. to the press after a match. I think he'll be all right. And he was. He was excellent. So, um, yeah, the lesson there was press interest in things. Yeah. And knowing how to deal with the press, it's quite... Uh, and I do quite a bit of work around reputational risk mm -hmm. and dealing dealing with the press. And the understanding or the lack thereof of what the actual principles are. And therefore, when you're reading anything in any newspaper, and by that I include not just the tabloid press, mm -hmm. but the broadsheets, they don't often get it right. And when you're involved on the inside of a case and you know what's going on and you see what's printed and you're thinking, but that's not what happened. Mm. And so often I'm thinking when I'm reading about another case that might be um, in front of the court, so, you know, the Johnny Depp stuff or whatever that's always, you know, those kind of things are all over the front of the papers. What we're reading has probably got nothing to do with what's actually mm. going on in the hearings and what the, the legal principles mm. are. So it's um, it's a bit weird. And how do you feel when you're representing somebody that high profile or a case that's high profile how does that responsibility weigh on you but all cases are high stakes mm. and the other thing is not many things thankfully for people involved not many things get to trial very few things get to trial and it's costly and it's public once it gets there it's costly and it's public so most disputes that i'm involved with 
will settle well before they see the light of a courtroom, which is great for everybody concerned. But for the individuals involved, that matter, that case is critical. You know, nobody comes into litigation lightly, but you do your best Mm. and, and you advise the client on have they got a strong case? If they haven't got a strong case, you try to encourage them to settle and remove themselves from that litigation as quickly as they can. And at the end of the day, when you're arguing, litigating, defending, settling, whatever, what makes you feel like it's been a good day for you or the client? For me, actually, you know what's the best thing for me is if a client comes back mm. and not they don't have to come back because, you know, they will often say they don't really ever want to see me again. So they don't want to be spending their time with me. But if they come back and they rely on me to introduce them to one of my colleagues, they trust me as their advisor who can point them in the right direction for something else. That's a good day for mm. me, knowing that, that they've. They trust me and they, you know, that that reliance on me is, that's good. That's Mm. what you want. Building a relationship. And so obviously Manchester loves an argument, we know, don't we? And we're not shy. (laughs) We're not shy of standing up for ourselves and standing on for the things that are important to us. What's your view of Manchester in terms of like its history of debate? You know, we have a speaker's corner. It's a, it's a city that's full of conversation and debate, isn't yeah, it? Uh, yeah, I mean, Manchester, well, you've, I mean, going right back, you've got all sorts of things. I mean, you know, Peterloo and back again to where we came in about women's rights mm. and Emmeline Pankhurst. And it's great that, that it's a city like that. But that probably, the Industrial Revolution, the sort of all of those things have forged this city and made the city what it is. Mm. And maybe it's that northern grit or calling a spade a spade Mm. and wanting to be straightforward. And and I think um, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think it's... It has helped this city to get to where it has today. Mm. And what was your view on the most recent argument that we had, which is just over a year ago now with Andy Burnham and Richard Leese in the Manc Parkers, um, <laughs> taking the government to task over tier restrictions and, and oh. the deal that we weren't going to get. I mean, it was very Mancunian. It was. It was one of those, wasn't it, where you kind of like, well... I mean, I've got the greatest of respect for Sir Richard Leese and, and Andy Burnham's done a great mm. job. There's no no question about it. But it was one of those where you kind of were a bit worried and, and then you're sort of looking over at Liverpool and it was almost like they got given their, what was it, they got freedom or they got tier two got status tier two. And because Steve Rotherham didn't seem to argue quite as forcefully. It didn't surprise me. It was, you know, standing up for our city Mm. when all said and done. And, do you know, I don't think it did any harm to sort of emphasise to London and everywhere else in the country that this is Manchester. Mm. And is it Tony Wilson who said, this is Mm. Manchester, we do things differently here. And so it sort of struck a chord, didn't it, with all of that? And they won't forget that we're here again, will they? No. I know you take seriously the responsibility of using your platform as a leader to do work outside of the work that you're paid to do. You've always done that as long as I've known you. So just tell me about a couple of things that you do currently, externally from your day job. job. (laughs) (laughs) The day job. I'm on the board of the Manchester County FA. Chris Brindley, who's uh, Mm -hmm. spoken on here and is known to both of us got me involved with that which was uh, goes back a while now we've not had an in-person I think they had an in-person meeting the other week and I wasn't able to go but we've not had an in-person meeting for a while but it's a grassroots football association 
and Colin Bridgeford, Rabina Sharp. I'm going to miss somebody out now. I've started naming them, which is really bad. Um, but it's a really good group of people and driving grassroots football across the areas in and around Greater Manchester for kids and for girls. And it's that thing about exercise and making sure there's accessibility to sport and um and making sure that safeguarding, and one of the main things that we focus on in every single meeting is issues around safeguarding um, because it's absolutely paramount, isn't it? If you're going to take your kids and leave them to play football and, um, you know, making sure that they're dealt with properly mm. and looked after well. So I, I'm involved with them and um, we've obviously had an interesting time because there wasn't much football during COVID, obviously, uh, but things are picking up mm. again now. In fact, the centre that the offices were in was taken over as a COVID centre. So we've got a lot to do on that, and uh, so I'm very involved with that. The other thing that I've got involved in more recently is, again, somebody else you've spoken to, Eamon O'Neill mm-hmm. um, and St Anne's Hospice. St Anne's have got planning permission to build a new hospice building um the old one is old it's you know very old and they're doing a fantastic job in there but you know the services that they provide in a hospice like that they're second to none and so i'm I'm involved in helping them with their fundraising campaign to to get that hospice mm-hmm. built i think certainly the work that st anne's are doing in terms of fundraising i mean my auntie was in st anne's in little halton and i was mm. literally the whole family were just blown away by how wonderfully she was looked after. It was the kindest group of people I think I've ever come across. Do you know, and it's one of those things that people don't like to talk about, Mm. isn't it? But it's going to happen to us all. And, you know, if you find yourself in that situation, either you personally or a family member, you know, to have a facility that is so good... Mm we really do have to look after those those facilities and look after those people and what they've dealt with during COVID. Yeah. I thought, you know, coming out of COVID and everybody, you know, clapping for the NHS and clapping for carers and all that, I did think it might be a, a time when, if we were reaching out to people and saying, well, we're trying to fundraise for a, um, a hospice, it might be strike some more chords. But then there's so many calls on yeah. people at the moment and um, so yeah so big shout out mm. to anybody who feels like fundraising or giving some funds to, to say Anne's please think, definitely think and it. I think what we have seen haven't we there's been so much generosity I'm sure across mm. the, the, the country but Manchester has just been overwhelming in terms of its ability to give you know not just money but resource time yeah. support contacts and I think that's right I think that people from here recognise it's a bit about doing it for ourselves mm. And doing it to look after our people. And I think that's hugely important. So if you are talking to people about fundraising for something that's local and that that, that they're familiar with, I think that really um, that really does, does make a difference. Definitely, without a doubt. I mean, just talking about that, the values, I suppose, of us as a city, what drives you, what values do you live by and who's perhaps influenced that? Well, obviously, family have, have massively mm. influenced my, my values and... and um, where I, you know, where I get my um, drive from, um, and and in terms of uh, values, I've said, you know, treat people as you'd like to be treated yourself, which I think is is hugely important, and look after those less fortunate, those things, and about bringing on future people and and trying to give somebody a chance and an opportunity, those things are really important to me. Mm. 
I don't. Did I send you the Roland Transfield way? No, <laughs> you didn't. I think I've seen it before. <laughs> if, can you remember any? If I ask you, the trees one, right, pulling plant, up planting, trees. Pl- not pulling up trees. Oh, that's what you do. <laughs> <laughs> what about the trees? You pull up trees, planting trees. Planting so you, yeah. trees. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that that whole thing about leaving a legacy and doing something good is is. I think that's really mm. important. I don't think you can. The teams that I've developed, a lot of the people that have worked with me now and in the past, I've kept on from being trainees and seeing them develop and go on to become partners and and things like Mm. that. It's just really, it's great. You know, they've done it themselves, but, you know, the fact that you've seen them come from, you know, trainee and then, you know, now they're doing whatever they're doing, it's... um, and and so I want to do more of that, really. Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? When you, it does make you feel ancient, but then when you see yeah. <laughs> so many people who've come through the organisation and they've yeah. given you a great support and they've inspired you whilst yeah. they've been in your organisation, they go into great things. I think it is a mm. you feel like a proud mother. And then just relationships. Obviously, our careers are all built on that. But you've got to be known as a, as that person with integrity, as we said, haven't you? So. What do you think is important to you in terms of building a career? What would you say is the key to a great relationship? Do what you say you are going to do. Don't let people down. Um, Like I did with you with the the values, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) I'll forgive you. Thank you. Um, Just do Mm. what you say you're going to do and don't overpromise. Try to be your authentic self because... You've got a long career, hopefully. Mm. And if you've got a long career, you can't be somebody else, says she with a false scouse accent. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? You've got to be yourself because that's all you've got. It's so true because you, you get found out faster. Yeah. You definitely hear for sure. Long career, won't say how long, but a long, uh-huh. illustrious <laughs> career. At Roland Transfer, we talk about pits and peaks at the end of every week. And how important do you think it, Manchester has been to your career in terms of what you've been mm. able to do, the community you've created here? Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because I went to university in Sheffield, came back. And then when I joined my former firm, I, I moved around the northwest a bit. So I was in the Liverpool office and Chester office for a while. But always throughout the work that I was doing was based in Manchester. Always the clients that I dealt with were in Manchester. So it didn't matter that I was in Liverpool or Chester. It was always Manchester, which mm-hmm. therefore led to me moving back across and, and taking on uh, ultimately the role there um, where I was head of their Manchester office. And then my new opportunity in with CMS and helping CMS to grow their Manchester office and, and getting the name CMS along with Mark and Howard and Tanya and others, getting that known in the in the city it is great and and you know it's just home isn't it so yeah. why wouldn't i do it here and manchester's got such a thriving business community and so many great businesses that takes me into the manchester quick fire so given the fact that you grew up next to oldham athletic and you've got a scouse accent who do you support <laughs> Uh, my niece and nephew, Edie and Joe, would kill me if I didn't say Oldham Athletics. Right. So Oldham Athletics, <laughs> it has to be the Latics, the coldest ground in the country. But you can get a good meat pie there. 
that's, that's, that's the most important it. thing, isn't it? Is it is for me. <laughs> and I'm going to just talk about the Manchester Thursday night, traditional Manchester Thursday night after work drink, which I think is coming back finally. Mm. Favourite place back in the day and favourite place now? Well, I, I know. Back in the day, well, back in the day, going re- right back in the day, <laughs> I was based on Peter Street. So the Abercrombie pub mm. was a big one for us, um, just next to the police yeah. station. And then Mulligan's behind oh. San Carlo. Yeah. When Mulligan's was being ran, when it first opened by a couple who were from County Mayo, which is where my dad's from. Geraldine and Pat and Geraldine and Pat just ran a brilliant pub and they had proper soda bread and it was you know it was a really good pub in the day Mulligan oh. so those two and they'd usually have a bit of traditional music they did yeah yeah, yeah. so that was going there before and after a United game yeah it was brilliant great fun and brilliant. then getting on the we used to get on the the, um, the boat at yeah, the Arcadi and then yeah. go down it was great yeah yeah what do you order at the chippy Fish, chips, mushy peas and curry sauce or cheese and onion pie, gravy <laughs> and chips, um, yeah, chips, mushy peas. Mushy peas has definitely got to be in there. And when I went to university, even though it was only Sheffield, it was only 30 miles away from Oldham, I was horrified when I went into the chippy and they had these processed peas. They didn't, I thought the world had mushy <laughs> peas. You know, apart from That's the west of Ireland. When, you left when, we, yeah, when we went to the west of Ireland, I didn't expect mushy peas over there because we went there every holiday. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was a big shock for me. <laughs> they didn't do mushy peas. I was in Birmingham and the same thing there. There was, there was, was that Peter Cave? You got out moist. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm so, with him anyway. <laughs> exactly. How would you describe Manchester to somebody who's not been? Resilient. I think that's a big one, isn't it? Um, hugely resilient place. Um, friendly. Mm. Um, everybody speaks to everybody. Or maybe that's just me. <laughs> and, um, and then I was thinking about this and, and, yeah, all the sporting clubs, the music and all the rest of it. And uh, was it Ian Brown who said it's got everything except a beach? Mm. And it sort of sums it up, doesn't yeah. it? Because it has, really. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's got the lot, really. And it's on the doorstep. What would you say is your favourite building in Greater Manchester? In the city centre, mm. um, I think the Hidden Gem, St Mary's, the Hidden Gem Church, mm. um, just off Lincoln Square. It's a bit more visible, or it will be now when the uh, the new buildings go up. It's a lovely little church and, um, yeah, quite like, um, you know, from time to time, nipping in there mm. and lighting a candle, um, reminding reminding the man upstairs that I'm still here. Because, <laughs> um, you know, unfortunately, I'm sort of a bit of a lapsed Catholic, but, you know, like most lapsed Catholics, I am. Um, I still turn to the church in times of trouble or even just when I want a bit of peace and quiet Mm. it's a great place beautiful building just nip in Mm. and um, have some peace Mm. it's um, yeah it is a sanctuary Mm. in the city centre and what do you miss about Manchester when you're not here people yeah, people. Definitely not the weather. <laughs> but it's not true. I don't think it does rain here more isn't that than anyone else. No, I'm pretty sure it isn't. No, we know. I don't know the exact stats, but it's absolutely, it's not the rainiest city. No, no. It feels like it on some days, but yeah. there's so many beautiful days in Manchester and the sky's blue. I know. It's gorgeous. Yesterday I came back up from London and um, I decided because it was a bit of one of those blue sky autumn days, mm. I went for a walk around Dunham Massey, which is just down, not far from where we live. 
And it's amazing, Diana. Yeah. That place has kept me sane during has lockdown. Has it? Is that where you've, you've spent yeah. your time? I've yeah. been walking around there. I could probably tell you, I think I know every tree. <laughs> and every, every deer. <laughs> yeah, every deer and every duck. <laughs> so finally, obviously, we've discussed that as Greater Mancunians, we're prone to getting passionate about things we see to be lacking integrity or unjust. And we're, we're known to be hot-headed, aren't we? But as a commercial litigator at the top of your game for a long time, what would your advice be from Mancunian on how to prepare and win an argument fairly? Prepare. That is key. And yeah, don't lose your cool. And one thing that I've, you know, I've had to think about and learn, don't keep making the same point. Just make the point. So don't overtalk it. Yeah. Mm. You're not there to convince somebody. Put your points out clearly, prepared, clear thought, and then leave them. Drop the mic. Yeah, get out. <laughs> Let them make the decision. Then it makes me laugh because when I walk around Manchester, sometimes, particularly at night, the, the amount of arguments people like absolutely <laughs> screaming at each other, yeah. and, and it just makes me laugh. Mancunians Man- arguing usually after a few beers is yeah. so funny. So, Geraldine, thanks so much for joining me on We Built This City. It's been a pleasure, and um, I'm really excited to be working with you on some of those big legacy projects that we've been talking about, and some new ones that will be launching soon Um, and it's inspirational to so many people who may have a big dream from an early age but not quite sure how they get there just to keep doing the small things every day keep plodding on thank you thank you so much thank Thank you Geraldine Geraldine Ryan built this city by learning the importance of preparation the hard way by not just pulling up trees but by planting them too and by wanting to be a lawyer because the only one she knew, Barry Cuttle, drove a Jag. Next week, there'll be a bonus episode of We Built the City to celebrate Sir Richard Lees' 25-year tenure, leading this city through some incredible challenges, transformations and triumphs. I hope you'll join us to look back on what has been an amazing career. If you want to find out more about how Roland Dransfield can help you drive your values and create relationships that build your business success, then head over to rdpr.co.uk or you can find us on Instagram at Roland Dransfield or Twitter at RDPR Tweets. Or feel free to give us a call at the office on the same number we've had for 25 years on 0161 236 1122. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review and follow. Thank you.